Sometimes I have students ask me about the humanity of Christ. They say, well, is Jesus really human? I mean, is he human like us? And does he have the same frailties? Does, is it because somehow his divinity, does his divinity not kind of overcome his humanity? And the answer to that is no. When Jesus didn't eat, he got hungry. When Jesus didn't sleep, uh, he got tired. When Jesus' friends abandoned him, he got disappointed and felt rejection. Uh, when Jesus was beaten, he bled. When he was crucified, he died. He had all of those things that we have. But yet, that represents the true essence of humanity. Our finitude, our frailty, our dependence upon God. To ask whether or not Jesus is human like us is also to ask the wrong question. It assumes that we are the standard of humanity that Jesus has to come down to in order to be a real human. When Scripture says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and you have seen the glory as the only begotten Son, then it sets Jesus as the standard of humanity. And it's only when we are like Jesus that we become fully human. Our humanity rests in Him. Our ultimate selves, our true selves are in Him. And it's as we experience that relationship with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that we also then be transformed into the glory. We're invited into this kind of divine dance with the eternal God. Yes, God's self-sufficient, but God has always been love. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Spirit has always loved the Father and the Son. And it's in their love and their self-giving of their love that they're poured out. The Father poured out in creation. Jesus poured out in the incarnation. The Spirit poured out in Pentecost. Because that's what it means to love. And that's what we find in them. But we live in a harsh world. And 2016 has been a tough one. It's been a hard few years for our church family. It's been a hard year for our church family. It's been a hard year for me. A lot of things have happened in my own life. Hannah had surgery, was diagnosed with cancer. Angela had surgery. My father-in-law, Angela's dad, passed away from about a year and a half struggle with cancer, and we were his primary caregivers. Rebecca was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and we're all living that kind of new normal. And just to kind of top off the end of the year, we decided to be foster parents. Just <laughs> because nothing else good to do. Look, it's tough. It's hard. And the holiday season, as Phil said, sometimes can be the toughest. It can be the hardest. Which is why I would like to point us for a second to a cover. That's what the, that's what the kids call uh, a remake, a remix, depending on your age. Uh, a song that was sung and then it's resung uh, differently. A cover. Yeah, I'm, I'm interpreting it for the old folks. <laughs> Thank you, there, for your help. John the Revelator has a vision of a throne room and he hears a cover of Isaiah's worship song. 
And Isaiah, again, I'll remind you, it was, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of God's glory. But when John hears it, it goes like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Now that was a popular worship song. It, it had been uh, remade, covered, by lots of ancient artists, so to speak. I mean, it was first recorded in Isaiah 6, but lots of other Jewish literature used that same song in the description of the throne room. Uh, we find it in Enoch and Baruch and Jubilees uh, and other texts as well. I mean, it is a popular song. I mean, it's like, um, I exalt thee for those of you that are 50 and older. <laughs> the difference, though, is when John records it, he doesn't say the whole earth is full of God's glory. He says God is the one who was and is and is to come. There is hope in the coming of God. There is joy in the coming of God. There is peace in the coming of God. The coming of God is, is the result of God's love. And the coming of God will fill the earth with his glory. It's what we look forward to. It's what we hope for. It's what we partially experience in the birth of the Christ. The down payment on, on the final consummation. But, John doesn't say the whole earth is full of his glory. Because I think when John looks around, he sees a lot of pain and suffering. Antipas has been martyred. There are people who are forsaking the faith. There are other people who are being persecuted in, in Smyrna and in Philadelphia. Rome is strong and powerful. Who can withstand the beast? It's all around us. It's there where we wake up, when we pay our taxes, when we go to work. As Morpheus said, it's the matrix. We're, we're born into this kind of brokenness. The one who is and was and is to come. But John's story is not a story of despair. It is a story of hope. Because he believes that God is coming. And God is not only coming in the final eschaton, but God is coming into our very presence. That the outpouring of the Spirit, that the experience of love, of joy, of peace, of grace, is the experience of the coming of God that transforms us individually and corporately, and that is transforming the world the Greek word for grace is charis. Sometimes it's thought of as a gift, the, the, the plural charismata, the gifts. But sometimes in theological circles, we, we do some damage to it. We kind of reduce it to this kind of forensic formula, something that's kind of imputed to us or imparted to us or imputed into us. Those are all helpful in some ways, but they also... They, they miss the, the fullness of it. The glory that, this new kind of glory that God promises. The, the cognate with charis is kara. 
Chris, Karai, you can hear how close they are. One means grace and the other means joy. The coming of grace brings joy. And this, this is what I want to kind of leave with you today. The way to glorify God is to be who you were created to be. To, to have fun. To live life. To have this fullness. To eat a good meal. To listen to a beautiful song. To watch a powerful movie. To read an inspiring book. You know those times in your life where you're having so much fun. You're, you're so full of joy that it's as though time itself is suspended. The birth of your child, your wedding day, last day of school, first day of school. Whether, whether you stay, get up early in the morning to watch the sunrise or whether you drive to the beach and sit on the sand to watch the sunset, whether you take some time over this holiday to get away to the mountains, whether you listen to a beautiful song or watch your favorite Christmas movie or listen to a wonderful sermon, if you have an opportunity to do that. Have fun. Enjoy it. Take deep breaths. Have long hugs. Eat great meals. This is what we're created to do. This is what all of our other talk about God fails when we talk about God's self-realization and we talk about God's self-glorification, His nature, His will. Look, God is beautiful. God is attractive. God is full of joy. And our experience of him should be just that, to enjoy. What's amazing about this, of course, is all of this happens in the birth of his son. This is what we celebrate in Advent. This is what we're coming to. The creator becomes small. Paul writes it like this in Philippians 2. He says, considering equality with God, not something to be held on to, he emptied himself even to the point of being a human and was obedient even to the point of dying on the cross so that God, the Father then, would raise him up so that he would be a set above all others and that by his name all might be saved, might be rescued. We're not just talking about a religion here. We're not just talking about avoiding punishment. If that's all Christianity had to offer, then why? We're talking about life. We're talking about joy. We're talking about abundance. We're talking about Christmas time and the Christmas season. In the beginning, there was creation. But at the end, there's the kingdom. In the beginning, there was God and only God. But in the end, Paul says, God will be all in all. The coming of God is the ultimate thing to celebrate. One of the best ways that we celebrate it, and we celebrate it quite a bit around here, is the coming to the table. The reason Jesus is always inviting someone to eat, right, is not that he was just kind of hungry, had a tapeworm, right? Man, that guy has to eat all the time. 
And it's not because he's a glutton, although some people called him that because he did eat a lot. It's because when something good happens, we want to celebrate, right? We celebrate life. We celebrate life with meals. Come, let's eat together. You know, someone got married. There's Thanksgiving. There's Christmas. Someone graduated. It's somebody's birthday. All the time, I'm looking to go, go to eat with somebody. <laughs> I love to eat. I love to celebrate. I often pray uh, when I pray for the food. Uh, you know, I thank God for it. I'll ask God to bless it. Uh, and I, I picked this up from a friend, though. But then I'll ask God to bless those who don't have food. And I'll ask God to bless those who have food but no one to share it with. Because this is life. This is the glory we're talking about. We're not talking about a self-grandized glory. We're not talking about kind of hogging the, the limelight. We're not talking about some kind of narcissistic need to be loved. We're talking about the healthy, well-adjusted fullness of life. We all like to be liked, right? You know, some of you like me, and I love that about you. <laughs> and you should know, I like you too. And I'm glad we're in this life together, this glory together, in God's big, beautiful creation. Servers are going to come in a few minutes, and when they do, uh, they'll serve you the elements of the table. And we will celebrate the fact that the child that's born grows up and invites us to the table. And we'll, we'll receive it. It's God's grace and God's gift to joyously participate in the life that comes through the one the only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ.